0: The scripture reading today is in John chapter 15, verse 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full." This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all the things I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. This is God's Word.
1: One of the things we all have in common as human beings is that we're all building a life. Every day, you and I are making choices and decisions where after 60 or 70 years, we're going to look back and there's going to be a body of work or what we call the fruit of our labors. Now, gosh, at the end of our life, when we look back, there's going to be regrets, right? We're going to look back and say, man, that was stupid. I should have never done that. It's going to be things we're ashamed of, but I think the majority of the life that you and I lived, we're going to look back and we're going to see, as Jesus said, fruit that remains. There's going to be lives we invested in, people that we love, things that we achieve with the gifts and talent that God has given us. And then there's going to be the glory that we have given to the one who has given us life and breath. I was at a Christian conference one time and Carly Fiorina was there at the time. She was the CEO of Hewlett Packard, very gifted woman. And I wrote down her quote. She said, life is God's gift to you. And then what you do with that life is your gift back to God. I think that's why John 15 is so memorable for many of us. We can almost all quote it uh, verbatim, especially verse 8 where Jesus said, In this my Father is glorified, that you go and bear not a little fruit or some fruit, but that you go and bear much fruit. And Jesus said, By this you are my disciples. Uh, If I had one thing I can instill into all the people that attend Calvary Chapel, and all the people that I preach to as I study God's word, it's this, that they would know that God's a God of abundance, that he desires you and me to live fruitful lives and at the end of our days, our fruit would remain. The Bible's clear on this from the very beginning where God puts Adam in a garden and then he brings a partner next to him, Eve, and listen to God's command to the couple, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, You know, God doesn't take this garden and tell Adam, now, Adam, don't move more than two or three miles from this garden. And in fact, if you really love me, then you're going to pray 12 to 15 hours a day. You're going to attend church seven days a week, or you're going to read your Bible three to five hours a day. Adam didn't even have a Bible. And I think it's these religious constructs that make our message, the message of Christianity, unattractive to people that don't know Christ. They think the Christian life here in this life is boring and then when we get to heaven we're going to float in a crowd and that's going to be boring. Nothing can be farther than from the truth. God created this complex, beautiful, wonderful world. He instilled in human beings a desire for wonder and creativity, our curiosity and our brilliance to figure things out and he unleashed us into this natural world, told us to be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth. That word subdue is very interesting. It means to control or conquer, to bring under. Uh, I like one definition that says to cultivate. It's where we get the word horticulture. So uh, right up the street from us is Longwood Gardens. It's one of the great botanical gardens in all the world. And when you go to Longwood Gardens, it's almost hard to imagine that human beings could put together just the beauty that you see on these grounds, the flowers, the trees. But all of that is horticulture, which means to take all the parts that God created, the dirt, the soil, the seeds, and then put it together in such a way that it is just beautiful and, I believe, glorifies God. It's where we get the word culture. So think of big cities where we talk about how people are cultured. They go and they watch an orchestra. Seven musical notes that men put together and make countless songs. This was God's desire from the beginning, that man would be fruitful and whatever he would do. Uh, we'll never know what Adam could have done or what his offspring could have done and sin hadn't entered the world. Uh, he certainly wouldn't have stayed in the garden. I think Adam would have built cities and uh, his prodigy would have gone on to do many of the things, the wonders that we see today. I remember someone asking me one time, they said, Pastor Bob, had sin not entered the world, how would the, the planet have contained all the people? And I always answer, if you took all the people in the world right now, seven billion people, uh, if we stood side by side, we'd actually fit in one of the smallest states in the Union, Rhode Island, if you can imagine that. And then think about this. How do you know we would have stayed on Earth? How do you know we wouldn't have gone out to other planets? You know, what God had planned for the human race was grand. But sin marred all that. And even after sin, God told Adam and Eve, it's going to be a little harder. There's going to be thorns and thistles but be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and once again, subdue it. This idea of fruitfulness runs all the way from Genesis to the blessed or happy person in Psalm 1 whose abundance is that they're planted by rivers of living water. And listen to this, they bring forth fruit in every single season of life. Not only the spring and the summer of our Christian life, but in the difficult fall and winter seasons, you and I can still bear fruit and we must bear fruit Jesus continues this theme in his parables where he talks about talents and soils and growth. And finally, on this last night, in an upper room, Thursday night, the night before his crucifixion, he told his disciples that God is glorified, that you must bear fruit, and that without me you can do nothing. Last week I mentioned Robbie Zacharias, how it was unthinkable for me that just this past October, I had been with Ravi's team, and they were strategizing and planning for a 2020 that's really been upended for most of us, and uh, I had gotten word in January about Ravi's cancer, and Ravi of his own admission said it was just a blip on the radar, and he'd be back preaching and teaching, and uh, I woke up Tuesday to a text message I couldn't believe, Ravi Zacharias had died at 74 years old. And the only thing I could do that day was sit down and write a tribute to a man who had invested so much into my life, so much that I have learned and I know now is through the ministry of RZIM, and I'm highly indebted. I began to jot down uh, much of the fruit that I know of Robbie's life, the millions that heard him speak, the multimedia platforms that his message are available on, the 75 evangelists that he's raised up and He pays uh, down in Atlanta, the training center in Atlanta, the apologetics forum in England. And then there's all the relationships that he's built over 74 years, family, friends, colleagues. Uh, We'll never know all the secret little things Ravi has done. And it's because of that he has already heard the words, well done, that good and faithful servant. See, it's faithfulness. The Bible says it's required of stewards to be faithful, faithful for what God has given you, whether little or large, right? Most of us will never have the influence of Ravi. But if we're faithful to what God has given us, the talents and the things that God has given us, we will hear the same words because God has been glorified by Ravi's life and he's glorified by by our lives. I ask myself the question, why is God glorified when we bear fruit? And I thought of three reasons, and the first one, every parent would understand, right? So you have this blessing of children, most of the time they're a blessing, and uh, there comes a time where they do things where you just stand back, and, and I don't like the word proud, but you just stand back and there's, there's something about what they have achieved that just brings pleasure to your soul. So if I mention any one of my kids, if the others ever listen to this, then they'll wonder why I didn't mention them, but I'm gonna go for it anyway. But my oldest daughter, Amanda, came to me one day and she said, Dad, I got an email. They want me to speak at the commencement address for Rowan University, university she had attended. And I told her that had to be spam. Uh, It had to be a phishing scheme because Bono and the governor of New Jersey, they usually do those commencements. That's something you do after you've achieved at the end of your life. And we found out that um, she actually was going to give the commencement address. So, right up to the final day, I thought it was like a post address to maybe the English department. So, we all wanted to support her, and we arrived that day, and they picked us up in a golf cart, took us to a fancy lunch. So, I'm thinking, wow, this is a little over the top. Finally, we were escorted to the first row. We're there on the Jumbotron. It wasn't Bono or the governor of New Jersey. My daughter was giving a commencement address at 28 years old. It's one of the most proudest, joyful days of my life to see not only what she had achieved and what she was doing, but the woman she had become. And every parent has a similar story. I think another reason why God is glorified is the P word, purpose. See, we've been told a lie in our culture that we climb the ladder of success, we go for the gusto, but we do it kind of like the Marlboro Man, if any of you can remember those commercials. The rugged individual who does it for himself, who, who achieves so that he might gain wealth and build bigger barns, indulge in things God never intended for us. And the reason why that's a lie is because Solomon, who did all of those things at a very high level, writes in the book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes and said, all was vanity. It was all chasing after the wind. We were born for a purpose. And when we walk out that calling or purpose, listen, we come alive. We begin to bear fruit. When I look at what we do here at Calvary, for those of us who were on staff, we would never do this for money, guys. It's too hard. And We do it for purpose and love and because God has called us to do it. We never do this for money, never, never, never. So if God is glorified just when he sees us use our talents and gifts, and if God is glorified when we live out of purpose, I think he's also glorified when we live in what I would call wholeness or what the Bible calls holiness. The scripture says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering. This is something that the Spirit produces in us. It's not the works of the flesh, it's the works of the Spirit. When we live these lives, when we become Christ-like, I think God is glorified because God is holy and we're living um, in congruency with who he is. Now, if this is what fruitfulness is, if this is how God is glorified, then how do we do it? And I think the Scripture is clear, Jesus said it. We abide in him. We just stay close to him. It's such an oversimplification, but it really is that easy. Um, Now, to kind of further ponder it, Jesus has already used this word. Remember in John 14, where comforting his disciples, he said, Look, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I told you, many abiding places. And if that wasn't true, I would have told you. So what Jesus was saying is that that there's an abiding place on earth and there's one in heaven and that the one on earth is that we are abiding with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word abide means to follow. In other words, to abide by the rules. But the way it's used here in this older language, it means a home. It's a place where we rest. You might hear someone say, this is my abode. Doesn't have to be a house of your dreams. It can be an apartment, a boat, it could be anywhere where you just kind of hang up your hat. Remember the Beverly Hillbillies? Sit down, take off your shoes, stay a spell. It's wherever we find that place where we can be who we were meant to be. I was thinking about this from the day I met Jesus till now. I've lived in seven different homes. Now, they weren't all homes apartments, living with people, stack all them up. I lived in seven different places or abodes. And I remember every time we would move, I would go back to the old place, and I was sad. You know, I, I, I looked at the place we were leaving and all the memories, and then I realized this is only brick and mortar, that home is where the people I love are. That's what makes home home. That's what makes church home to me. That's why it doesn't feel like home right now. There's nobody here. I hear so many people saying live stream is the wave of the future. And listen, I'm not railing against live stream. I hear all the evangelistic metrics out there, right? Oh, we have more people coming to our church now than ever, more people giving than ever. Listen, this is a million miles from anything God ever dreamed up. Jesus went to a synagogue as was his custom. Not to be a consumer, but to interact with human beings. Live streams what a great tool. We're going to use it on into the future. But we were meant to be with one another. How can you be a body when you're not here? How can someone be a hand, a foot, an eye when we're not here? So many people in our church have, have married one another. How could you marry someone if we're not here? We've taken trips together. We've served together. If you're looking for a good book to read, I'll recommend an older one by Robert Putman. It's a classic, it's called Bowling Alone. And in this book, he he was kind of a prophet forewarning what was coming where America would be fragmented and moving towards isolation because we're seeing a lot of our, our communities dissolve our religious institutions and civic organizations. He talked about a time where, where you know, society will no longer be transformational because we would do many things alone. And we've seen that come to pass since his book. A lot of people are arguing, no, social media is the answer to all this, and now we can work at home, and we're hearing things like that, but we're becoming more isolated and more alone. I want to read you what Catherine Hobson said. She was citing a 2017 report Where it turns out people who reported spending the most time on social media, more than two hours a day, had twice the odds of perceived social isolation than those who said they only spent about a half hour a day or less on those sites. And people who visited social media platforms most frequently, 58 visits per week or more, had more than three times the odds of perceived social isolation than those who visited fewer than nine times a week. Our culture was already moving towards isolation before the pandemic. The church was already moving towards isolation. So we got to get back to community. We got to get back to being with one another because this is our abode. This is our abiding place. Jesus simply said, abide in me and I in you and great things would happen. You would bear much fruit. Now there's a little tension we have to solve because on one hand Jesus is telling us to abound to bear fruit, and on the other hand he's telling us to abide. And human beings aren't great at living in the tension. We love to run to extremes. But I'll tell you this: Show me anyone who's abounding, and I know they abide. Show me anyone that abides, and I know they abound. The apostle Paul is a classic case study in this. I spent a lot of time with Paul. I spent a lot of time in the New Testament. If I could pick Paul's life verse, it would be 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where he said, Brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. The things you're doing for God, the fruit's going to remain. So keep at it, keep sowing seeds, go for the gusto. No one could argue that Paul abounded in his ministry, he set the church ablaze. No one could argue that he wasn't someone who knew about abiding? How many times would he kind of in all humility understand what Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. To the Galatians, he said, God hasn't chosen many wise, many noble, but he's chosen the baser or the foolish things of this world. Now, when it comes to abiding and abounding, we can all kind of lean one way or the other. Now, I'm of the nature where I don't lead more towards the abiding side, I lead more towards the abounding side. I'm all about vision and purpose and, you know, getting out there, and I can run ahead without God. I forget that I'm a branch, Jesus is the vine, and I have a tendency to go out and do it myself. And listen, I can still garner fruit, right? Look at the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Jesus comes along and he said, you've got great programs here things are functioning. This is a wonderful church. Nevertheless, I have this one thing you have to clean up. You've lost your first love. Church at Ephesus forgot that they were to abide in the vine, that God wanted to be a part of what they were doing. And I need to remember this. I have have a tendency to run out ahead of God, forget that he's the source of my strength, and forget, listen, That when Jesus says, abide in me, that's not so much of a command, but an invitation. See, the reality is Jesus could do this without us. He really could. Matthew 24, we're going to see at the end of days, the end of the end of the end, that there's going to be an angel preaching the everlasting gospel. I'm sure he'll do it a lot better than any of us. But God desires that we do this with him. How many times you read in scripture, it's here in John, it's in Revelation, where my father and I will come and make our abode with you. When Luke writes the book of Acts, he writes to the Theophilus, and he said, Oh Theophilus, this is uh, the continuation of all Jesus began to do and teach. That was the gospel of Luke. Think about that. The book of Acts was a continuation of all Jesus would do and teach. In other words, the book of Acts becomes the Acts of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, through the early church. See, what Jesus was saying in the upper room that night is here's a grand invitation to live life with him and to go out every day through his strength and power and bear fruit. I want to read you verses 11 to 17 again. They're so rich. These things I have spoken to you That my joy would remain in you, your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father have been made known to you. Earlier when he talked about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. We're his children, we're his friends. We are his partners in this redemption of the human race. What a grand, grand invitation to abide with Jesus and to watch him do the work. I wasn't part of the Jesus movement, I missed it. I saw kind of the afterglow. But there's enough Calvary Chapel uh, ministers who are my friends that I just love to sit around and hear about those days. Hear about the days of, you couldn't even get in a sanctuary, you had to sit on a lawn, and people were preaching in high schools, and people were getting saved in the droves, and I just hear that story, and the the one thing they say is, you know, we we weren't conjuring any of this up. It's the work of the Spirit, they were abiding in the vine. And Jesus kind of gives this metaphor to his disciples on that last night, and for them it was a word picture um, I can't prove this. It's conjecture on my part. But they were meeting in an upper room that night, and they would take that walk over the Kidron Valley in the Gethsemane where Jesus would be betrayed. And to take that walk, and I've taken it many times, they would have had to pass the gates of the temple. And the temple gates would have been open that night. It was Passover, and on the temple gates would have been broidered and, and chiseled out um, a vine because Israel was God's vineyard. The psalmist said in chapter 80, verse 8, You have brought a vine out of Egypt, and you have cast out the nations, and you have planted it. You see, Israel was to be God's vineyard. They were to feed the nations spiritually. They were to be a light unto all the world. Jesus said that his house was supposed to be a house of prayer to all nations. But Israel failed miserably in this context. They failed so miserably in being God's vineyard that in Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet says, speaking for God, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its crib, but my people don't know. They don't consider who I am. Because of that, God said, alas, a sinful nation, a brood of evildoers, and I can't endure them anymore. I can't endure their sacred meanings. God said, I can't even look at your services and the function of the temple. Prophet Micah said the same thing in chapter 6, of his writing, he said, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the God most high? Kind of uses exaggeration or hyperbole. He said, do I bring 10,000 rams? Does God want rivers of oil? Of course not. He doesn't want our firstborn or any of that. But he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require. Listen, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You see, it's so simple, guys. I know we forget. God just wants us to abide with him, and we abide with him, we're going to abound because when the word of God gets in you, it just begins to explode, and what's on the inside is on the outside. So you might wonder, well, how do I abide? Do I just sit around? No. Um, We all know what abiding's like. You put God on your calendar. Every day you commune with God. Commune with God through prayer, which is just talking to God. You commune with God by being with one another, by doing good works. Giving is one of those ways where you commune with God. God's a giver. The scriptures is a primary way for me to commune with God. And I know some people cringe at this because some people aren't readers or they look at the Bible and it looks complex. Others know how much division the Bible supposedly has caused that people that know the Bible disagree with others and it's divided us and that should never happen. But when you read the Bible, there is a communion with God. You read a verse and there's what Richard Foster calls the Emmanuel principle, where you, where you begin to understand where low in the volume of the book Jesus said it was written of me. He's the word of God. John has brought that out. In the beginning was the word, the wo- word was God and the word dwelt among us. And so you begin to read the Bible and you begin to meditate on it and you begin to commune with God and it begins to speak to you. And then everywhere you look in life, you begin to see life through God's lens. You begin to hear the voice of the Spirit. And so when we go out and we begin to look at life, there are these things God sets up during the day. Sometimes we preach the gospel. Sometimes we help someone in need. Sometimes we're with our own communities or praying and we're giving. And all the while if we're abiding in him, he begins to speak. We begin to act on those things and our relationship begins to grow. One of the things about abiding, about Jesus being our home, is home is a place of rest. Again, home is a place where I kick off my shoes and I throw my things down and I just relax. I feel safe there. Uh, During this pandemic, it's been quite stressful for many of us. Uh, Right now, our church, uh, to put in secular terms what we do, we are in the two worst industries you could be in. Uh, One is kind of event management, you know, us gathering from a secular's view, you know, we are an event-driven organization. And the other thing is we're a school, so those are the two hardest-hit industries. And uh, because of the two hardest industries, we have to look at employees and finances. And this is an area where I've had rest for the predominance of our existence. Lately, I find myself looking at more financial reports than I want to. But at the end of the day, if I'm abiding in Jesus, I can find rest. I know he's going to take care of this, even if we have to make difficult decisions. He's going to take care of your needs. He's going to take care of, you know, if you own a business or... You know, if you got laid off from of your job, he's got this. And we've got to find our rest in him. Now, there's one thing we haven't talked about and we have to talk about it. It's in the first 3 verses. Jesus said, "I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every tr- fruit every branch that bears fruit, he prunes" that it may bear more fruit, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Now, don't mix up the metaphor here. The, uh, The branches that don't produce, they're thrown in the fire and burned. Listen, in our vernacular, they were never saved. It's the one that bears fruit. Remember, Jesus said the parable of the soil is 30, 60, and 100 fold. He cuts back, he prunes. Now, no one likes to talk about this. Listen, I'm a gardener. Um, Gardening's expensive. A lot of the things you plant die. But the one thing I've always struggled in is pruning, especially roses. I go out and they look so beautiful. And I see the fruit of my labor. And the last thing I ever want to do is prune them. But I know in my mind, if I prune them back, they'll get even larger next year. It's the same with God. Uh, Sometimes we're not walking the way we should. Sometimes we revert to the old nature and family of origin practices. Uh, We get alienated from the things of God and we get back into addictive behaviors and God comes and he has to do a little snipping. Sometimes he does a little pruning when things are going well. You think, well, what's this? Well, it's just God saying, I want you to bear more fruit. Sometimes God deals with this and he said, you know, I don't want this to be a part of your life anymore. And you're like, why God? It's a part of Sally's life. It's a part of Joe's life. And what God's saying is, I want to take you to higher ground. You're going to have to leave some things behind because I have something greater in store for you that if you'll abide in me, one day you'll see how that works. So God begins to prune. He cuts off some of the dead things. He even cuts off some of the living things. The one thing we know is he's a master gardener. He sees with the end in mind. I love that parable that Jesus tells about an owner who comes to a vineyard And there's a fig tree right in the middle that's not producing figs. And he says, cut it down. And the vine dresser's there and he says, no, master, give me about a year. I'm going to dig around, I'm going to fertilize. That's grace. And let's see what happens. And we never hear the end of that parable. But I think that vine dresser in the parable is God who is so willing to kind of dig around and fertilize us at the roots that even those things that are dead, they might live once again. God wants us to bear tremendous fruit. And listen, it's never, ever too late. Never too late. I was reading about Michelangelo. I've been to Rome. I've seen the Sistine Chapel. I've been to Florence and seen the beautiful sculpture of David, the Piazza, the Sistine Chapel. The painting of the Judgment is my favorite. But I was reading about Michelangelo, and I was stunned. At the age of 71... He was commissioned in 1547 by Pope Paul III to build St. Peter's Basilica. Now, the average age of a Renaissance man was 45 years old. Michelangelo lives to 71. He's already painted the Sistine Chapel and all the things i mentioned, and he's commissioned to build St. Peter's Basilica. Now, they had for 40 years built it, but it was in ruins, And his answer to the Pope was, I'm not an architect, to which the Pope said, you weren't an artist either, and look what you did with the Sistine Chapel. Fifty years after completing the Sistine Chapel, he began St. Peter's Basilica. I've been there. It is still studied in architectural classes today. The things that he built, the scaffolding and the ramps and the flying beams and structures is one of the wonders of the world Before the pandemic, 22,000 people lined up every single day to see the work of Michelangelo, who built fruit and its remained. It's never too late, guys. Most of us will never build the Sistine Chapel. We'll never sculpt out a piazza. But as we're living and breathing, we have a chance to go and bear much fruit. I look back on my life as a Christian, and I'm just overwhelmed the influence God has given me. The critical choices I had to make, the things I had to leave behind, the pruning that that I endured. But I look around, even in this season, and I think, God, you are amazing. God, you had Calvary Chapel, Delaware County in your mind when I didn't even know who you were. And you've allowed me to walk this out. And so many of you have walked out dreams and put your skills to work. God can be trusted. He's the vine dresser. All we have to do is stay plugged to the source. You know, I was trying my hardest. I'm just not that smart enough to bring this into the kind of the modern world. And I was thinking about a phone charger. The problem is I lose my phone charger too much of the time. But I was thinking about the phone charger where at night you plug it into the source. And as long as it's plugged into the source... It can do what it was meant to do, but it's such a bad analogy. There's something about technology that just doesn't really fit what the agrarian world speaks to us. The vine, the branch, the grapes, the fruit, it is still the greatest analogy, all interconnected, the source giving its strength. Our desire is to glorify God You know what the beautiful thing is? When we glorify him, our joy goes up. John said, these things I've written to you, that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be fulfilled, that you might live the abundant, fruitful life God has always desired us to live. Father, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for John 15. We thank you for verse eight. God, we were put on this planet to glorify you The psalmist said, with everything in us, with every breath, may we give you praise. Every symbol, every instrument. Lord, even the trees of the field are going to clap their hands one day. The angels rejoice. But Lord, you made us greater than angels, greater than the trees of the field. God, we bow in your service and we abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen.